This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross. Our guest, Colson Whitehead, is a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner for his novels The Underground Railroad and The Nickel Boys. The Underground Railroad is about a 15-year-old enslaved girl who escapes a brutal Georgia plantation. It was adapted into a Peabody Award-winning TV series. The Nickel Boys is based on the story of the Dozier School for Boys in northern Florida, a reform school infamous for its mistreatment and brutal punishment of boys who were sent there and for buried bodies discovered on its grounds. There are many sides to Colson Whitehead's writing. He also wrote a novel about a plague where everyone who's infected becomes a zombie and a memoir about playing poker. His latest book is a crime novel called Harlem Shuffle, set in Harlem between 1959 and 1964. It's now out in paperback. The main character, Ray Carney, owns a furniture store on 125th Street in Harlem, but he has a sideline trafficking in stolen goods as a fence, or as he prefers to think of it, a middleman. Nothing like his father, who was more of a full-time crook with crooked friends. The novel is about Ray's dual life, class divisions within Harlem, and the crimes of the elite compared to crimes on Ray's level. Terry spoke with Colson Whitehead last year. Colson Whitehead, welcome back to Fresh Air. I love this novel. Thanks for writing it, and thanks for coming back to our show. Yeah, thanks for having me back. It's very exciting. I want to start by asking you to do a reading. And just to set this up a little bit, so, you know, Ray Carney is a fence, and he, he basically deals with pretty small-time stuff. But his cousin, who's more of a, a full-time crook, and this is a cousin who Ray has bailed out all of the cousin's life, the cousin Freddie comes to him and says, look, we're doing a heist of a safe at the Hotel Teresa. And you describe this as the Waldorf of Harlem, and it was a real hotel. And uh, Ray thinks, wow, robbing that is kind of like pissing on the Statue of Liberty. And he thinks this is this job is just like too big for him. It's like wrong for him. So I'd like you to do a reading about Ray Carney's reaction to his cousin's proposal about fencing the stolen jewels from this heist after the heist is done. All righty. Even if he were crooked enough for his cousin's proposition, he didn't have the contacts to handle a haul from the Hotel Teresa. 300 rooms, who knows how many guests locking up valuables and cash and safe deposit boxes behind reception. He wouldn't know what to do with it. Neither would his man Buckspam, down on Canal, have a coronary if Carney walked in with that kind of weight. Carney was only slightly bent when it came to being crooked, in practice and ambition, the odd piece of jewelry, the electronic appliances, Freddy, and then a few other local characters brought by the store, he could justify. Nothing major. Nothing that attracted undue attention to his store, the front he put out to the world. If he got a thrill out of transforming these ill-gotten goods into legit merchandise, a zap charge in his blood like he'd plugged into a socket, he was in control of it, and not the other way around dizzying and powerful as it was. Everyone had secret corners and alleys that no one else saw. What mattered were your major streets and boulevards, the stuff that showed up on other people's maps of you. The thing inside him that gave a yell or tug or shout now and again was not the same thing his father had, that sickness drawing every moment into its service. The sickness Freddy ministered to more and more. Corny had a bent to his personality. How could he not, growing up with a father like that? You had to know your limits as a man 
and master them. Thanks for reading that. That's Colson Whitehead reading from his new novel, Harlem Shuffle. So after writing novels with really big social themes, The Underground Railroad and The Nickel Boys, why did you want to write a crime novel set in Harlem in 1959 to 64? Yeah, well, I usually do mix it up. Um, you know, write a serious book or most more sober book and then something lighter with, with more jokes. Um, I originally was going to follow up the Underground Railroad with Harlem Shuffle, but then um, after the last election, presidential election, I had to sort out my feelings about being in America. Are we heading in the right direction? Am I optimistic or pessimistic? And so the philosophical dilemma of the, of the two boys and the nickel boys uh, was more compelling. But that meant when I finished that book, I had all these notes for Harlem Shuffle, and I was eager to get back to it. As for the why... Um, about seven years ago, I was trying to think of a movie to rent that night. And I was thinking about how much I like heist movies and, um, and thinking how much fun, you know, the, the directors and writers must have put it all together and I asked myself, you know, why can't I do that? And the answer is, uh, you know, no reason at all. Why not? Now, you said it in a period of the civil rights movement, 59 to 64. It ends a year before the Voting Rights Act. Carney is pretty oblivious to the civil rights movement, but his wife works for a black travel agency that books people into places that are safe for black people, which is especially important in the South. Then the agency becomes involved in booking travel for civil rights groups. And I found it really interesting that the civil rights movement is way in the background for him, whereas it's kind of forefront for her. Well, I think like many couples, you know, some people, (laughs) someone is paying attention and the other person isn't. You know, I, I, I didn't feel any need to make um, Carney more political than he probably would be. You know, he's, uh, he's half crook. Um, he's preoccupied with the store and isn't as clued in as the teenagers and college kids who are marching um, when there are, you know, there are various protests. Uh, he, you know, he hopes that he's not going to get a brick thrown through his, his window, and that's what he's concerned about. And his cousin Freddie, um, you know, who's... Uh, you know, more of a freewheeling type, likes to go to marches so he can talk to pretty girls, you know, these teenagers. So um, um, I didn't feel the need to uh, uh, make them more political than they, w- they would have been. So as, as you've described, the, the main character has a dual personality. He's part legit businessman with his furniture store. His sideline is as a fence. What interested you in a character with those dual sides? Well, I always start with, you know, these abstract propositions or questions like, why can't I do a heist novel? And then have to actually make it into a story. So um, it's a heist. Uh, when is it? Where is it going to be in New York? And the first thing I thought was the, um, you know, the, the, the crooks might exploit some big New York event. So I tried to think of, you know, should I use the blackout of 77? And they use that for cover uh, for a heist. Um, the riot of the early 40s, which was... Um, happened when a, 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 a cop abused a, a, a black person in Harlem. And then I thought, Ralph Ellison kind of owns that because an invisible man. So, so I can't really go there, which left the, the ride of, of 64 after a young uh, black teenager was killed by a white policeman. And so once I had 64, it all flowed from there. Um, and uh, uh, I split it up into three sections 1959, 61, and 64, and, and try to find different pegs for what's happening in New York that could serve the story. So in the book, Ray's father, who is 
dead when the book begins. He's someone who occasionally had to break somebody's knees. He was the muscle, the guy who had to follow through on the threats. So this is how Ray grew up with a father who was out all the time doing God knows what. And Ray becomes a fence. Did you have to do a lot of research into how fences operate or how they operated back in the 60s? Yeah, I mean, uh, and the research is fun because it, it feeds the book. So um, I decided to have a fence for a hero because I always find it appalling when I watch a heist movie and, you know, the criminals have stolen their $2 million in jewels and half the gang is dead and a cop's looking for them. And then they go to the fence and uh, the fence says, oh, I'll give you 10 cents on the dollar. It's always so appalling and um, I'm so mad. And um, I figured that would be a good person to figure out uh, for a book. And so um, there's not a lot of literature about fences, but there is actually a book called The Fence. And it's a sociological study about um, these guys in, in the Midwest in, in the 60s. And one of the first things that struck me was their description uh, of being as a, a wall between the straight world and the crooked world. You know, things come in stolen, slightly uh, previously owned, and then they go out into the world um, ready for their, their next owner cleaned up. And that dividedness, I immediately mapped onto to Carney's personality. He has this part of himself that wants to leave the life that um, he grew up in and have a business and go to college and have a nice family. But there is that call in his blood, which I you know, sort of put in, in that reading that we started the show with. Um, and that struggle going back and forth um, is paralleled by the, the fences role and speaks to so much of, th- of how I think a lot of us live. You know, I think there are, a lot of us have you know, different parts of us, uh, reconciled, unreconciled, and, and sometimes that's the, the drama of our lives. I love the way uh, Carney describes some of what he sells as gently used. <laughs> he, you know, he's he lies to himself. He's not necessarily as clued in to how crooked he is at the at the start of the book and in the three different sections. You know, the three different jobs or, or capers, as, as as I call them, and he uh, he gets more comfortable with his criminal side. He uh, he rejects it. Uh, so at the start of the book. You know, Freddie comes up to him and says, "We're doing this heist," and and Carney's like, "That's ridiculous! Like, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a fence. You know, I just a humble businessman, and I sell some lightly used merchandise." And uh, Freddie, of course, calls him on it. And so, part of that um, internal drama, you know, I have a lot of fun with. Uh, how much can Carney admit to himself who he actually is? And then when he does admit to it, what does he do with that knowledge? Carney could put what he was doing in a more kind of socio-political economic context and say things like, in a world where my business <laughs> degree means nothing because I'm black, this is the work I have to do to fulfill my ambitions because doors are closed to me. But he doesn't think in those larger terms. He just thinks like, it's really hard to make a living in a furniture store selling uh, on the installment plan because I, I barely have the money to pay to pay rent, and I want my family to move to a nicer home. And, and so I think it's interesting, since you are so socially, politically, economically aware and have written novels that show that, that in this character's mind, that doesn't really figure into it. Yeah, well, I think that's what I sort of find lovely about him, is that um, you know, he's, he's complicated. 
And as the book goes on and the years pass, um, he's not hurting as much for money. You know, his wife Elizabeth has a good job and, uh, and things are going well. Uh, but he still does dabble and then do more than dabble in the, in the, in the criminal world. So what, what drives him? And I think that uh, perplexing situation you know, it was, it was very tantalizing. In, in my last two books, I had an enslaved girl, Cora, who runs north, um, and she's very much defined by, by slavery, the social order of the times. And, and the two kids in The Nickel Boys, too, uh, are very much defined by Jim Crow and uh, the racist world around them. And so immediately, once I started writing Carney, I knew this is somebody who was going to win. You know, um, he was going to win sometimes. Uh, not all the time, but he has a different sort of engagement with uh, the forces around him. And uh, maybe he's not as socially conscious, and uh, maybe I don't find him admirable all the time, but I have great affection for him. And, and, and putting, him in, putting him in these different positions where he's tested uh, was quite a lot of fun. I want to get back to being a fence. So can you describe in a little more detail how fencing goods works. I mean, it's kind of like laundering money, but with goods. Sure. Uh, well, it's different things. You can, it's, it's jewels, it's, it's rare coins, uh, TVs. So in the case of, of, of Carney, when we first meet him, uh, Freddie and other local hoods have stolen televisions, radios, and Carney has a little spot in the corner of his store where he, um, he sells used TVs, and no one really asks, asks where they come from. Um, when I was reading these sociological studies of fences, one thing that was made apparent very early was that they often have fronts, uh, front stores. And so the main guy in this one study um, reupholstered furniture. And so in the front of the store, he has these used armchairs that he's refurbished. And where does he get them? He goes to the swap meet. And at the swap meet, there's like a rare coin guy over there. And so... Um, a criminal has given the fence uh, uh, these jewels and, and, and coins and uh, other things to wash, and he'll find other dealers at the swap meet. He'll sell them at his store. Um, but you're connected in this you know, shadowy underground of people who specialize in this or that particular thing. If you uh, uh, put your diamond necklace in the hands of your, you know, your jewelry connection, that person have, has connections to the legit broader market uh, marketplace. And so something that is stolen on Tuesday, you know, can re-enter the supply chain on, on Friday. And, um, and it's very fluid. And, um, and the idea of like a front, you know, the front that you have out to the, to the world with uh, the sort of bad business in the back is applicable definitely to Carney's personality. When you were writing this novel, did you develop an eye for stores that you thought might be fronts? Well, I, um, I was always, you know, I still continue to be, to be a failure to know which stores are fronts and what is not. Um, when I lived in Brooklyn, in, I guess what they call it, a changing neighborhood in Fort Greene, Brooklyn in the, in the 90s, I would go to like the store, you know, I'd buy a six pack of beer and the store is completely empty, this bodega, except for like SOS Brillo pads. <laughs> um, two Twinkies and a six pack of Corona. And then I go to pay for the beer and the guy's like, 
It's like, what are you doing in here? Like, don't you get it? And so then my friends would tell me, oh, that's a weed spot. Like, you know, that's <laughs> not really legit. <laughs> so I'm very oblivious, uh, but I have to get into character. And, 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 and Carney, as he uh, enters deep, more deeply into the criminal world, starts to see things he didn't know before. And so he's, he's riding along with this corrupt cop who's picking up his envelopes, his cash from all the people he's uh, shaking down. And he passes the bakery that he's walked by for decades, and it's actually has a craps game in the back. And the stationery store is a front for a numbers operation. And so as he awakens to his own criminality, he awakens to the, the corruption um, th- uh, that's been invisible to him his whole life, but has been omnipresent. One of the ways he protects himself from thinking of himself as being a criminal is that he sees the goods, but he never sees the people who were robbed or the businesses that were robbed. And if there's no victim that he knows about, it's less of a crime. It really made me think about how, how easy it must be to protect yourself from thinking about the victim if you don't know who the victim is. You don't know who's been hurt and how they've been hurt. I think that's definitely true. I don't think I explored that enough in the book, so I'll take that. I'll write that down for, for future inquiry. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that point. Um, but also, you know, um, I in each section in the book, you know, from fifty nine to sixty one to sixty four, I keep pulling back, and we start with like a street level view of, of crime in Harlem, and then we pull back and meet some well-to-do um, African-American bankers and insurance agents, um, the sort of upper class of Harlem. And they're, you know, it turns out they're pretty crooked too. And a lot of their victims, uh, they can't put faces to because they're, they're signing paper, um, uh, uh, calling, in, calling in mortgages on people they've never seen. And then in the third section, I pull back even more and we, and we see more of the power structure in the city. We visit... Park Avenue and, and, and Wall Street. And those guys on the 35th floor have no idea uh, who they're harming in their uh, machinations. And so, um, yes, uh, uh, Carney um, is luckily uh, is in a position where he doesn't, doesn't get to see who's the actual victim of, of these crimes. And then there are people who are operating on a scale so much uh, of, of such a bigger magnitude. You told the New York Times that you think everyone has a criminal side, even if it's just stealing a pack of gum. So, of course, I have to ask, you feel that way yourself? Um, mostly when I was stealing Wi-Fi before everyone had passwords like 15 years ago. <laughs> so that, I'm, I'm <laughs> that is truly a victimless crime unless you're hacking the person you're stealing from. <laughs> but they're, you know, they're... You're freeloading. Their streaming is slowing down because I'm, you know, stealing your bad, uh, bandwidth. No, I, I'm, I'm a, uh, very much a Boy Scout. So um, I have to use my, the powers of my imagination to figure out Carney and these other characters. Colson Whitehead speaking with Terry Gross recorded last year. Whitehead's latest novel, Harlem Shuffle, is now out in paperback. We'll hear more of their conversation after this short break. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air. Let's get back to Terry's 2021 interview with Colson Whitehead. He won Pulitzer Prizes for his novels The Nickel Boys and The Underground Railroad, which was adapted into a Peabody Award-winning TV series. His latest book, Harlem Shuffle, is a crime novel set in Harlem between 1959 and 1964. It's now out in paperback. 
The main character, Ray Carney, is the owner of a furniture store on 125th Street who's also trafficking in stolen goods as a fence. You set the novel in Harlem. It's a black world in Harlem and in your novel, except for the cops who are who are white. Was it a relief to write about Harlem after writing about an escaped slave who runs into every imaginable problem after escaping? I think doing Underground and Nickel Boys back-to-back definitely took its toll. I mean, I think um, I had done all my emotional heavy lifting before I wrote Underground Railroad, and so I knew what I was getting into. But then um, having another setting where innocents are being brutalized and uh, are searching for their freedom uh, really demoralized me. And so as I was finishing the Nickel Boys uh, and bringing the boys closer to their tragic fate that I'd mapped out, you know, two years before, I definitely felt very depressed and depleted. And I finished the book and then just played video games and, and barbecued for six weeks. And that's how I came back into myself. So having a project that has the capacity for joking and humor. And uh, and I do see making jokes as part of uh, my project and and why I I write. It's one of my avenues of exploration. So having having fun with this crime genre and and some of the supporting cast who are kind of colorful was a relief. And from the first page of of, uh, writing the book and getting back into writing a book set in New York. I felt I was on my, my home turf after writing two books set in the South. And, and the challenge of recreating a New York before I appeared on the scene, I was born in 69, uh, was a, uh, a nice challenge to put before me. Do you see a through line between, say, Underground Railroad and your new novel in the sense that after... Slavery and once Jim Crow started and and when, you know, lynchings and other forms of attacks against black people were so common, so many people from the South moved to the North. And that's probably one of the ways Harlem became Harlem. You know, how Harlem became black as opposed to Jewish and Italian, which it was before that. You write Harlem was desegregated in, in 1940 after the neighborhood tipped over from Jews and Italians and became the domain of Southern blacks and West Indians. I love this line. Everyone who came uptown had crossed some variety of violent ocean. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, there's this churn of, of immigrants in, in Harlem, which uh, I, I found very fun to explore. The um, 150 years ago, Harlem is, is farmland, is pasture land, and then... Uh, speculators put up buildings, and then the the tenements and, and townhouses are filled with all these refugees from uh, from Europe, and it, it is it's Italians and Irish Jews from all over all over Europe, uh, Irish, um, and they come to make their way in, in this new country. They cross the water, they enter the middle class, and move away uh, to the suburbs, the downtown, different neighborhoods in Manhattan. They're replaced by a wave of a black migration from the South, from the Caribbean. My grandmother came uh, through Ellis Island in the 1920s from Barbados. And so what I love in doing the research is walking through these different neighborhoods and seeing these old brownstones and townhouses and imagining that churn. You know, I, I mentioned the churn of 
of, uh, of stolen goods in and out of people's hands. And there's this churn inside these humble townhouses, all those different lives and those different rivers and, and oceans that they've, they've crossed to come here. And they enter the middle class. They don't. Um, uh, but uh, there's so much... In the same way, there's all this, this secret history behind the storefronts, the bakeries and, and, and crooked stationery stores, is this whole secret history in these townhouses. As we've mentioned, Ray Carney is the son of a, of a crook, of a full-time crook. And Carney's wife is from a middle-class family. Her parents live on Strivers Row in Harlem. Her father is a successful accountant for successful businessmen, politicians, doctors, and lawyers in Harlem. Her father brags about his collection of loopholes and dodges. And he belongs to this club for the elite black community in Harlem called the Dumas. Am I pronouncing right? Dumas Club? I think if you, it's named after Alexander Dumas, but I figure these guys say Dumas. That seems like a mid-century Harlem <laughs> okay. way to say it. So I, mentally, I, I think of Dumas. Yeah. And, and so you describe it in the book as a paper bag club. Would you explain what that means? Uh, there were various social clubs for well-to-do black folks in the, in the 19th and 20th centuries. And you could only enter them if you had a you know upstanding job, and also if you were lighter than a, a paper bag. And so the paper bag test meant that if you were darker skinned, you were not accepted, and uh, you're not going to join their little little club. So there was that much colorism in the elite black clubs? Yeah, and, you know, um, I mean, I can't speak for all of them, but that was definitely a, a real force, that sort of social stratification. Um, where are you from? You know, are you first-generation college or uh, third-generation? Uh, do you come from a long line of free black folks? Um, or have you just come from Alabama, you know, last year, and now you're trying to, trying to make it and, 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 and try to be one of us? And so colorism and, and class stratification uh, exists everywhere. And part of, you know, the second part of the book is pulling back to see these other social forces that are... Um, affecting Carney. You know, he has a bad background, he's darker skinned, and how does he navigate this hoity-toity privileged world? Can you talk about how Harlem has changed from the time the novel is set, 59 to 64, to now? Um, Because I imagine you spent a lot of time in Harlem while you were writing the novel, even though it has changed. Yeah, I mean, you know, location scouting and, you know, finding places for, for Carney to live. Uh, you know, that was a, um, a a great, fun thing to do. I lived in Harlem until I was about six on 139th and, and Riverside. So, so my uh, first New York is a, a very gritty, uh, dirty New York. Um, but uh, for research, I would go back to newspapers and there are books about the Hotel Teresa and then also, um, you know, if you go to YouTube and put in 1960s Harlem, some amateur filmmaker from the, you know, from, from back then has uploaded his reel of walking down 125th Street and, um, uh, in 64, 67. And for me, I, I look at all the signs in the background. I'm like, oh, okay, a hamburger was 35 cents or what kind of hat is that? And then I research what kind of clothes they're wearing. Um, and so when I compare the footage uh, of just some guy walking around with his camera to what I see now and uh, those tiny storefronts are now 
uh, big box chains. It's Chuck E. Cheese, big Nike store, uh, Magic Johnson theaters. Uh, the footprint of, uh, of, of, of retail is quite different. And as in a lot of different places in the, in the country, you can see in the background um, those painted signs, like on the fifth floor of a building, you know, like, you know, Sammy's shoe store. And so if you look up uh, at certain tall buildings, you can see that old sort of vanished New York in the same way you can see that old vanished Chicago or, or Seattle. Um, but on a street level, it's, you know, that, that very shiny retail we have now. And so it's very stark when I, I'm walking around thinking what Carney's going to do next. And then there's a reality of, of, of 21st century retail staring me in the face. Tell us about the Hotel Teresa and its place in Harlem. So a lot of the other you know, things in the book I had no knowledge of. And so I'd walk past that building, you know, many times in my life. Um, uh, but I hit upon some references to the Hotel Teresa and its importance in Harlem culture in the 40s and 50s. So it was a, a white whites-only hotel, and then had to be desegregated because uh, the, the neighborhood changed. And it became the place to stay. If you were Joe Lewis or Billie Holiday or Cab Calloway, you would stay there if you were in town, uh, be seen at the cocktail bar, um, you maybe keep an apartment upstairs. When a, a big band came to town, you know, they alert the media, and there'd be this big uh, group of paparazzi and all the all, all, all the folks uh, from the neighborhood would come to see who was stepping off the bus. Um, and uh, I read that and thought, that's a good place for a heist. You know, it just seemed it was such a holy place uh, that, that it could be a site for some of the action in the book. And, you know, and I, had to, I had to think of these different robbers' reactions. And so Miami Joe, who plans the heist at the Hotel Teresa, He's come from the South. He's a new arrival. People look down upon him. Um, and it's not necessarily because he's from the South. I mean, he has a bad personality, but he takes it personally. And so uh, robbing the Hotel Teresa would be, you know, sticking his finger in the eye of this Harlem elite who looks down upon him. Let me reintroduce you here. If you're just joining us, my guest is Colson Whitehead. His new novel is called Harlem Shuffle. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air. Let's get back to my interview with Colson Whitehead. His new novel, Harlem Shuffle, is set in Harlem between 1959 and 64. It's a crime novel. Mount Morris Park, which is now called Marcus Garvey Park, is um, a place where bodies are buried <laughs> yes. in the novel. Like if you've, if you've killed somebody, that's the place to hide the body. Um, and our lo a lot of our listeners who aren't familiar with Harlem might know Mount Morris Park, now Marcus Garvey Park, from the Questlove documentary about the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival, because that festival was held in Mount Morris Park. Um, so what do you know? I mean, was it really, is this part of like the park's lore or is it like really true that <laughs> their bodies were buried there? What's the story? Uh, yeah, not buried, but dumped. And so- um, Dumped, yes. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, I went to newspapers for what's happening in the city and uh, you know, starting with Underground Railroad, Primary sources are really just great for me to, you know, suck up slang and, and, and culture. So whether it was William Burroughs, who has a book called Junkie, and it's about being a, a junkie and small-time hustler in Harlem, all over Manhattan, in the 40s and 50s, uh, giving me uh, the language of the small-time white hustlers, 
or uh, the wife of Bumpy Johnson uh, helping me out. Bumpy Johnson was a, a big Harlem mobster. I actually wanted to put him into the novel and wrote a scene or two of him in it, and then I realized that he was actually in Alcatraz, um, which was unfortunate, so I had to take him out. Uh, but his wife, you know, to correct the record from all these lies about Bumpy Johnson, um, described the culture of the time, the criminal culture. And so that's how I learned about how numbers rackets worked and numbers banks versus number runners and stuff like that. And she talks about how if you, you know, beat someone up but didn't necessarily want them to die, you would drive past Harlem Hospital, dump them on the, uh, the foot of a the emergency room doors and keep driving. And if you killed them, you would dump them in Mount Morris. And basically it seemed like so many people were dumping bodies there that, that you had to like take a number every Saturday night to find space to uh, dump the, uh, the person you'd killed. You wrote a novel called Zone One about a plague and the people infected with the plague become zombies. And after this kind of plague and zombie apocalypse, the survivors have to kind of remake the world did you think about that a lot when COVID started? Because it, it's a plague. <laughs> and we're not turning into zombies, but, you know, we're, we're certainly having our share of problems. Um, it is a plague. And, uh, and definitely I was, I was thinking it, about it in a very sort of depressing way. Um, just being locked down and uh, remembering this or that passage from the book. But mostly I was just sort of angry about the things I didn't get right. Um, you know, the, the characters in the book are called sweepers, and they go door to door, um, retrieving dead bodies and, and taking out the last of the zombies so that they can restart civilization. So I didn't realize how much toilet paper they would find when they went to these different folks' apartments. <laughs> so, the hoarders. So the hoarders, yeah. So that was a, a failure of my imagination. Um, and then secondly, I had no idea that um, people would say, oh, the zombie virus, it's just like the flu. It doesn't really matter. Or I'm not going to get the zombie vaccine. You know, um, uh, the depths of the denial and psychosis around vaccines, I couldn't foresee. So if I did it over again, definitely there would be people who would resist the zombie virus, the zombie vaccine, and, uh, and um, suffer the consequences, and, which would be unfortunate. I hope you've managed to stay well through the pandemic. Uh, yes, for, you know, the early part of lockdown was, are we safe? Is everybody psychologically safe? And then how can we sustain a, a consistent Wi-Fi signal for the kids? And then how can I find an hour to work and finish off the Harlem Shuffle? So, you know, I count myself as very lucky that we made it through the way we did. In one of our previous interviews, you told me that... Um you almost saw yourself as a shut-in because you're always writing and reading. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yes, on social media, so writers would say, lockdown's not that different than, you know, the way things were before. Um, you know, writers proud to uh, have been training for lockdown life for decades and decades, <laughs> uh, which was true. But also, um, you know, some of my writer friends had younger kids, you know, one-year-olds and, and it was different sort of corralling them and finding the, uh, the time to work. And so everyone had their own accommodation with, uh, with, with the problem. You also told me that you had zombie dreams for about 30 years and not constantly, but it was the theme of some of your dreams for 30 years. And at the time we spoke, which was a few years ago, you were having those dreams about 
once a year. Are you still having zombie dreams? And did COVID kind kind of make them more uh, more frequent or yes, more I, I crazy? Hor- yeah, I, I was a big horror fan, and so I, I saw Night of Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead very early. And depending on my psychological weather, um, I would. Have, have dreams where zombies catch me, they're slow, they're fast, they talk, I escape, I, I don't. And that really did end with uh, writing Zone 1. They went from monthly to, like, to once a year. And they're still once a year. I mean, I have this thing where if I write about something, I definitely kind of exercise it. And so, which is good in some ways, like zombie dreams. Uh, I wrote a piece about fried chicken last year and cooking fried chicken. It was very detailed. And then since then, I haven't been able to eat fried chicken. So, so the, <laughs> <That's too bad. laughs> the, 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 the writing cure is uh, sometimes good and sometimes bad. Can I tell you about this weird thing, Terry? Yeah. Uh-huh. So, you know, so obviously uh, the Fresh Air interview is revered around the world. And so whatever I say to you now becomes the template for other people's interviews for years and years. So... Whatever you ask me, you know, will come up, they'll steal the, the question, but also any tangent. And so, you know, if I'm like, oh, and then in the summer I used to ride my bike and it was great, you know, three years from now in like Finland, some journalist will be like, <laughs> Colson, tell me about the bike you had. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> yeah, so they, just, they, they just go through the transcript and then they'll steal your questions. And then also, but they'll also steal like, you know, stuff that just comes up in conversation. So I'm like, what, you, what bike? What are you talking about? And then they'll, you know, they'll come clean. It's the first draft of history. So. <laughs> Colson Whitehead, it's been really great to have you back on the show. And I want to say again, I really love your new book. So thank you. Thanks for having me. It was great. Colson Whitehead speaking with Terry Gross recorded last year. Whitehead's latest novel, Harlem Shuffle, is now out in paperback. After a short break, film critic Justin Chang reviews the new fantasy film 3,000 Years of Longing, starring Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba. This is Fresh Air. In the new fantasy film 3,000 Years of Longing, Tilda Swinton plays a literary scholar who has an encounter with a wish-granting genie, or djinn, played by Idris Elba. It's the first movie directed by George Miller since Mad Max Fury Road, and it opens this week in theaters. Our critic, Justin Chang, has this review. I've always felt there's something a bit too self-conscious about movies that are explicitly about the magic of storytelling. Really, the best way to pay tribute to storytelling is to simply tell a good story, not to rattle on and on about how timeless stories are. That may explain why I felt both mildly charmed and a little worn out by the new movie 3,000 Years of Longing. It's adapted from a short story by the English writer A.S. Byatt, and much of it unfolds in an Istanbul hotel room where Idris Elba, taking a page from Scheherazade and her Thousand and One Nights, regales Tilda Swinton with one fantastical tale after another. Some of these tales are vivid and involving, but what they add up to is less than the sum of its many shimmering parts. Even still, the movie has its undeniable pleasures. The Australian director George Miller might be best known for his thrilling Mad Max series, but he's always had a flair for fantasy, as he's shown in marvelously inventive films like Babe Pig in the City and Happy Feet. In 3,000 Years of Longing, which he co-wrote with his daughter, Augusta Gore, Miller unveils an outlandish premise with a sly wit that's initially hard to resist.
Tilda Swinton plays Alethea Binney, a modern-day literary scholar who specializes in the study of narratives. The way the same tropes and symbols tend to pop up in stories from different cultures and eras. While attending a conference in Istanbul, Alethea goes shopping in the bazaar and purchases a small glass bottle as a memento. Later, while she's cleaning the bottle in her hotel room, out in a burst of smoke pops an enormous gin, played by Idris Elba. After some amusing awkwardness, how would you react if confronted by a giant otherworldly intruder with hairy blue legs and pointy ears? The two settle into a long, heady, and whimsical conversation. Also, they're both wearing those plush white hotel bathrobes in the movie's most charming visual. The djinn tells Alethea that he was trapped in the bottle roughly three millennia ago by King Solomon. The only way for him to be freed is to grant three wishes to any human who possesses the bottle. You'd think that Alethea would jump at the chance, but being an expert on stories, she knows that wishes have a way of backfiring. And so she refuses to play along. You mock me. Three wishes, perfectly simple and theoretically safe. I was imprisoned by Solomon precisely because I cried out my heart's desire only by granting you yours may I earn my release. Yes, well, I appreciate the symmetry, but the thing is this. I cannot for the life of me summon up one eligible wish. And you're asking me for three. Is there any life in you? Are you even alive? You know, in some cultures, absence of desire means enlightenment. Then you are a pious fool. If I'm content, why tempt fate? And you're a coward. Don't goad me. There is no human, no angel, no djinn that wouldn't grasp at the chance to fulfill their deepest longings, and I am saddled with the one who claims to want nothing at all. Alethea Bini, you are a liar. Alethea has long seemed content with her solitary existence. She was married once, but now has no family, and books have provided the only companionship she needs. But as she talks to the djinn, her long-forgotten desires for love and connection begin to surface. The movie's point seems to be that these desires, or longings, lie at the heart of every great story. The djinn knows this firsthand. He tells Alethea about all the women he's fallen for over the centuries, starting with his first great love, the Queen of Sheba. More recently, his bottle fell into the hands of a brilliant 19th century woman who used her wishes not to acquire power or riches, but rather to gain more knowledge about the world. Their love burned bright for a spell, but ended, like the others, in tragedy. This is why the djinn has never been able to break free. His love for the humans who command him proves his undoing. Miller dramatizes those stories in vibrant flashbacks decorated with all manner of ornate visual effects. Sometimes the results can be garish, but sometimes they're genuinely entrancing. At their best, the Jin's stories achieve the quality of a great page-turner. But the movie becomes less effective as it raises the possibility of romance between Alethea and the Jin. Swinton and Elba are both superb and have a sweet, touching chemistry, but they never forge the kind of bond that feels passionate enough to transcend time and space. The movie tosses off some fascinating ideas in the closing stretch, including the way a djinn might feel redundant in a world where technology has become its own modern-day magic. But 3,000 Years of Longing ends on a muted, uncertain note. 
it left me faintly curious about what might happen next, which is not quite the same thing as wanting more. Justin Chang is film critic for the L.A. Times. He reviewed the new film, 3,000 Years of Longing. On Monday's show, we kick off a week-long series of some of our favorite music interviews from the archive with two rock guitarists, the Rolling Stones' Keith Richards, who co-founded the band and wrote songs with Mick Jagger, and with Brian May, a founding member of Queen and its lead guitarist. He wrote one of the band's most famous songs, We Will Rock You. I hope you can join us. (laughs) 